based on the biblical precedent, historically great servants of God walk with limps and speak with stutters. They're deeply wounded by their pasts, are small in stature, and on the whole, underestimated. And that's the point. The whole point is that the army would give God all the glory upon the victory of its charge because the general leading them, the mere man, can barely speak or walk or inspire. So that God gets the glory and not the man who is merely the vessel for the Holy Spirit's work. If you are on the verge of leaving your whole entire Christian faith behind, like if, you, if you walked in as like a last resort because you're on the verge of turning your back on Jesus, and if the reason you would give is the difficulty that you're facing, then you are among the majority of those who are apostate from Christianity. The number one most common reason given for turning away from the Christian faith is trial and difficulty and suffering. If that's you, I want to speak directly to you. You don't really know God. You don't really know God. You've been judging him based on a rubric that was given to you by false teaching. Dig down to the root of your issue with God. For one thing, it's because you believe that you are entitled to good things from God. Would you consider the premise of that for a moment? Precisely what does God owe you? And how did you come to be in such a position of power? that the creator of the universe would be indebted to you for anything. That the Holy One would owe the sinner something. Would you consider what you actually deserve for a moment? Would you be honest? Would you be real? Be biblical? What you and I deserve is hell. That's fair treatment. But what God offers is grace and forgiveness and eternity in heaven. Is it possible that you're approaching God with a sense of entitlement that demonstrates an utter lack of self-awareness? Is it possible that you're actually a sinner and God's actually holy and you've been looking at this whole thing entirely wrong? Approaching God with a sense of entitlement like a little brat? Is it possible that you don't really know God at all? Wherever you got that notion from, the idea that God only owes you good things, that didn't come from Highlands Community Church. And it didn't come from the Word of God. It came from sweet, delectable, false teachings whispered in your ear by the enemy. And I hope that you encounter God the way that Jacob does in this text. That you walk away with a definition, an understanding, a view of God that is not contrived by the enemy in false teaching, but rooted in the Word of God. Straight from the Bible itself. Prepare to see what it actually looks like to encounter God. Jacob encountered God and he walked away with a limp. That's what it means to be blessed by God. It's to wrestle with him. To struggle with him. Make no mistake. You give your life to Jesus and you will face suffering because of it. 
You will face difficulty because of your Christian testimony, because of your walk with God. I don't know where the idea came from that giving your life to Jesus absolves you of suffering and excuses you from trial and pain, but it didn't come from the Bible. So let's see what the Bible actually says on the matter. We're going to watch Jacob encounter God and wrestle God, and then, as a result, limp like all the great men of God do. Look at Genesis 31, starting in verse 51. After this weekend, you'll see that the sermon plan is once again collided with the curriculum, so the two work in conjunction with one another. The curriculum has already covered some of the previous texts about Isaac and Jacob and his life, and I want to build a bridge to that. We've studied Abraham, and we've seen God iterate this promise to Abraham, this covenant with Abraham, promising him, I'm going to make a great nation through you, a nation with numerous descendants, more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. God iterates that promise in Genesis 12, reiterates it in Genesis 15, speaks it again in Genesis 17, and then further elaborates upon it in Genesis 22. That same promise is then passed on to his son, Isaac. Then Isaac has two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Isaac is sort of a shell of a man. He's a ghost, perhaps traumatized by the near sacrificial event. We don't hear much from him, but he looks like a fool when we do see him. Now his twin sons, Jacob and Esau, are about to be used of God in his sovereign will to produce two nations, one upon whom God would pour out his wrath and another through whom God would make salvation possible. God is sovereign in all of this. It's his right to do so. And watch as people connive and trick and threaten one another. But in all of it, ultimately, what God prophesies would happen, happens. Through all of it, God is truly the one that is sovereign. So Jacob is a trickster. But upon departing from his family, he gets tricked. He goes under the employ of Laban. And his new father-in-law Laban tricks him multiple times. Not only in regards to which daughter Jacob gets to marry, but also even in terms of like which livestock are his on the land. Laban says, okay, those livestock are mine, the ones that look like that, and the ones that look like this are yours. Well, this particular group of livestock, whatever was allocated for Jacob, that's what would thrive. And then Laban, again, would trick Jacob and change the terms. Okay, no, 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 no. Now, now these goats, these are mine, and the other ones are yours. Well, then the other ones begin to prosper. You see God's, God's favor upon Jacob. Jacob's faith is largely untested until the events of Genesis 32 and 33. And as we catch up on where Jacob has been, and we move with him to this encounter with his brother Esau, whom he last saw roughly 20 years prior, he's stricken with fear because the last time he and Esau interacted, Esau promised to kill Jacob. And now, as Jacob is being called to retrace the steps of his grandfather Abraham, he must encounter Esau. So he's leaving behind Laban, moving on to encounter his brother Esau, following God's calling. Look at verse 51 of Genesis 31. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor 
the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. All right, notice that. They eat bread to commemorate. We are going to eat bread during this time together. Prepare your heart for communion at the conclusion of the sermon. 1 Corinthians 11 provides a warning that if anybody takes the bread and the drink in a, a manner that is unworthy, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. So ready your hearts. Ready your hearts to remember the Lord. Forgive whom you must forgive. I, I, I don't care if you pull out your phone and have to text an apology to somebody to make peace with another believer. You're, you've been forgiven everything, so you forgive, Christian. You go before the Lord and confess sin to him as we go through his word and prepare your heart because we likewise will eat bread commemoration. Look at verse 55. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps, and you'll see why. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Okay, let's pause right here. This messenger leaves out some pretty crucial details. <laughs> And Jacob is terrified. All he knows is Esau has 400 men with him and the last time they interacted, roughly 20 years before this, Esau promised to kill Jacob. Look at verse seven. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the first sign of spiritual maturity that I see in Jacob in the biblical narrative. And it's, it's the result of the distress that, that's in his heart, the fear that's in his heart over encountering his brother Esau. Let's get some backstory here. Let's see exactly why Jacob is so petrified of his brother Esau. All right, here's Genesis 25. Here's the story of how the twins were born and what God prophesied over them before they were even born. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Would you take note of that? Two nations are in your womb. Two entire nations are represented in these twins. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. 
The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's a striking breach of tradition, that the older brother would serve the younger. Typically, if you're the older brother, you're the firstborn, you're the one in charge, you receive the primary blessing, and you're the boss, and the younger, the younger brothers all serve you. But this is prophesied before the twins are even born, before they've done anything right or wrong, but just so that God's purposes in electing Jacob over Esau, Israel over Edom would stand, it was preordained before they were even born that the older would serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were, tw- there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. His name has a meaning to it. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding his heel. So his name was called Jacob, usurper. Isaac, whose name, by the way, means laughter while we're defining names because Sarah laughed at the thought of having a child at her age. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, the animals that he brought home after hunting. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, look at this. Jacob is a little bit of a mama's boy. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Did you see that? Esau's name was changed to Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. If you're on the verge of leaving your walk with God behind, because of all the the difficulties that have befallen you, would you look at this text and with a proper degree of self-awareness admit if you see your reflection in Esau? Why are all these bad things happening to me? Why am I suffering affliction? Why am I going through this trial? Well, if you're like Esau, it's your own fault. Everything happens for a reason, they say. Well, sometimes that reason is you're dumb. (laughs) So own your own contribution to your own suffering and difficulty. Okay, if you step into the trap, don't ask God why you're in the trap. And God will say, well, because you, that's why. I mean, be brutally honest. Are you blaming God for things that you did to yourself? Esau here swears an oath to give his own birthright away. And then later on, he's pouting and crying out in anguish because he loses his birthright. He just swore it away, fair and square. All right, everything that Esau cries about later, he evokes upon himself now in this text. Hebrews describes this as adulterous. Isn't that fascinating? I used to, I used to scratch my head at that. Like, what does the idea of forsaking a birthright for a bowl of lentil soup have to do with adultery? I didn't really understand it until I was married. And then I under, now I understand it. Now I understand it. Okay, it seems like a complete non sequitur, but hear me on this. Married, faithful husband, in your bride, you have everything you could ever need. Everything you ever want. All of God's promises fulfilled right there in your bride. Why in the world would you forsake all that God has promised for just a moment of physical relief? Esau, likewise, the firstborn son of Isaac, 
At this point, not knowing what God had prophesied to his mother, Rebecca, he believes that he is the next in line to receive all that God has promised, everything that God has given. All of God's promises, everything you'd ever need is right here. Why would you forsake all of that for just a moment of physical relief? Do you see the parallel between Esau forsaking what God has promised in exchange for a moment of physical relief for adultery itself? I mean, I've been to Carabas, I've had lentil soup, and it's spicy and it's really good, but it's not that good. And Esau gives up everything in exchange for it. Now, you know who flies under the radar a lot in this Jacob and Esau feud is the mother, Rebecca. She could be the most successful trickster in the whole story because she coaches Jacob most of the time. And so Isaac, stricken with blindness, getting along in years, is tricked by a scheme plotted together by Rebecca and Jacob to pass that spiritual blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. As a result, after Isaac dies, Esau is furious. You're gonna come to see as we get to know Esau through the text that he rarely actually means what he says. He just swore an oath to give his birth right away, but apparently he didn't really mean that. He also is gonna swear that he's gonna kill Jacob, but he may not mean that either. This is Genesis 27, verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Now watch this. Look at what she says to Isaac. We know what her true intentions are, but then look at the way that she, look at the way that she now tricks Isaac. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so this is the ruse under which she sends Jacob away. So the last time that Jacob and Esau interacted, it was on terms of Esau promising to kill Jacob. That's the reason for the fear in Jacob's heart back in Genesis 32. So that background in mind, come back to Genesis 32, verse 9, and you can see, you can see how decades of working on his heart have come to this moment in Genesis 32, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, remember your country and your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I believe that's the first demonstration of self-awareness we've seen in Jacob in the text. Would you emulate this? On the verge of walking away from God, would you confess that you don't deserve one aspect of the steadfast love that he's shown you all along? I don't deserve the steadfast love and the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please, look at the fear in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Now, this is actually quite beautiful. He moves from that fear to proclaiming the promises of God in verse 12. He is stricken with fear in verse 11, but he is proclaiming the promises of God in verse 12. 
I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. He is convinced that Esau is going to come in and murder every last woman and child in his camp. But you said, I love that, I'm afraid, but God, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. I mean, look, this is all the livestock that, that came about in his time with Laban. And I'll bet they looked really bizarre without any consistency in their, in their genetics. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And who are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him. And with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. I typically sleep like a rock. My wife is a much lighter, my wife is a much lighter sleeper than I am. And if in the middle of the night, there should be even some subtle sound, you can count on it. Like a hand at light speed is going to reach over, boom, grab me by the arm. Jesse, there's a raccoon in the house. <laughs> or maybe a Sith Lord here to murder all of us. Can you go check it out? And so, armed with my pocket knife, I prepare to engage Darth Maul. <laughs> I do the husband thing and get out of bed. I'm groggy. I go downstairs. And then there it is. It's, it's, it's her Christmas present last year, this little six-pound Yorkie. That was, that was, that's, the, that's Darth Maul. <laughs> Utterly convinced we're all about to die a violent death. Apparently, lightsabers exist. And then it turns out it was nothing at all. This is hilarious. This is hilarious. Jacob has orchestrated a massive parade that rivals Macy's in the logistics that, it, that, that comes with handling that many droves of animals with space between them even. Do you see that? You know, 200 of this animal and 30 camels and, and they have space between them and then everybody has a script. Have you seen that? If you see Esau, tell him that these are from Jacob and he loves you and please don't kill everybody. Thanks, bye. That's your script. Rehearse your line. Say it back to me. Okay. And then you look in chapter 33, you can see that he even, this is genuinely funny to me to picture it going down. He has everybody practice bowing seven times to Esau. And I imagine the rehearsals in the camp before they go over. All right, everybody, you need to bow seven times or Esau is going to murder you, okay? I want good bowing technique, okay? Bowing from the hip, pivoting from the hip. None of this knee bowing, Matthias, I saw that. Last run through, 
Let's try to write down. Now up. <laughs> down. Matthias, what are you doing? Stop. Who gave Matthias a ribbon dancer? Esau is going to murder every one of us. You're all idiots. Somebody catch the camel. <laughs> He's utterly convinced. He's utterly convinced that Esau is going to murder every last woman and child. Now, spoiler, spoiler, as you'll see in your curriculum next weekend, when he does encounter Esau, Esau runs to him with tears and embraces his brother and kisses him and says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. So all of this angst and worry in Jacob's heart is ultimately futile. Have you ever noticed that about stress? Can you name one single instance and look back on it and say, I'm so glad, I am so glad that I worried myself near a heart attack over that. I am so glad that I was on the verge of a coronary over that issue. I'm so glad. Like, can you name one instance in which worry has added a single hour to your life? See, God already knows what's going to happen in his reunion with Esau. God already knows that. But he's capitalizing on the moment to refine Jacob and teach him humility. Okay, take it from, take it from a pastor who last week taught a sermon in the greater Seattle area on homosexuality. All right, you better believe. You better believe. Like, I was stressed out before that sermon, okay? I was stressed. I didn't know what to expect. You know, like picketers outside my office the next day, like hate mail, or I didn't know what to expect. Here's what I found. When Christians come out of their bunkers and share the word of God, people are saved. I haven't received any hate mail. I've only seen someone saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So come out of your bunkers, Christians. Let the word of God ring true. I am not lost, the irony is not lost on me that I would wrestle with worry before a sermon and then the very next week's passage would be Jacob wrestling with worry. <laughs> God is faithful. God is faithful. Look at this interaction between Jacob and God. Right there in the midst of his worry. Verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Do you see that? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. By the way, in the coming chapters, that change is going to be reiterated that Jacob's name was changed to Israel. For you have striven, the past tense of strive, with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob 
called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is what it looks like to encounter God. This is what it looks like to be blessed by God. Is it possible that you've completely misconstrued the very purpose of your own wounds, your own struggles and the difficulties of your past? You had a framework that only allowed God to give you good things, but it never occurred to you that the wound allowed upon you by God, dealt you directly by God in this instance, is in and of itself a blessing. I've seen this firsthand. I've seen this firsthand. I feel like since moving here, my family and I have just been standing under a waterfall of blessings and love and affection from Highlands Community Church. Thank you so much for all the beautiful, kind, encouraging words, the positive and beautiful things you've spoken over me and my ministry and my family and our time here. Thank you for that. But what you don't see is the painful, painful limp that God dealt us in the past to get us ready for this. In 2012, I was on a trajectory to be a decent youth pastor. And then my son Aiden died. And the very trajectory of my ministry was forever changed. And I can look back on what God has done in our ministry through our testimony since that time, and it's immeasurably more than I could have ever asked or imagined. God has done the greatest work through our family, through our greatest source of pain. It was in part because of the medical bills that needed to be paid, but that I even got into Christian publishing to begin with. Do you see what God did? You see what God did? Books were written that wouldn't have been written otherwise, that have reached people that wouldn't have been reached were it not for that. I think about my son Aiden every day. I know that one day I'm going to see him again in heaven, and I want to be able to tell him that I stewarded his testimony to reach as many people as I possibly could with it. I think about what he thinks of me all the time. I want to be able to look my son in the eye and tell him that with as much passion as I could, I reached as many people for Jesus as I possibly could with my entire life. Do you see what God has done with the wound that's in my heart? Now what might he do through your wound? What might he do through yours? What ministry might he accomplish through you? Think on it for just a moment. God has equipped you with a testimony, with a story, with a ministry that only you can steward. Everything good that God has brought about through our ministry is from above and he gets all the glory for it, but you must know, you must know what pain it costs to arrive at this place of stewardship of God's blessings for my bride and for me. You want to be used mightily of God? Be prepared to be wounded deeply by God. And think on it for a moment. Ways in which you've been wounded, these are actually the substance of your greatest testimony. This is what it looks like to be blessed by God, to wrestle with him and to walk away limping. It's entirely possible that you, Christian, on the verge of leaving everything behind, are actually right there in the midst of the defining moment of your testimony that this great wound that you've been dealt has been dealt to you so that you might minister from it. You've been given a testimony that didn't exist before. Now, my skeptical friend, 
What does this text have to do with you? How does this affect you in any way? Look to Romans 9 as we close and see ways in which this text directly affects you and I today. Romans 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It means that you, even though you're not descended from Abraham, you today, placing your faith in Jesus, might partake in this covenant that was made to Abraham, reiterated to Isaac, and prayed just now by Jacob. For this is, this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I've seen that verse misinterpreted, misunderstood, and underappreciated even. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What is that all about? Well, remember, Jacob's name was changed to what? Israel. Esau's name was changed to what? Edom. So what's the deal? Why does God despise Edom? What is God's issue with Edom? Well, there's literally an entire book of the Bible devoted to answering that question. At Lifeway, we had a brand of curriculum that was custom. It was called Discipleship in Context, and it meant the churches could call us and say, hey, we want to study this. Can you write us a study for it? And we would write that and give it to them. And after years of doing that, the director of adult ministry at Lifeway shared something fascinating with me. He said, in all of our years of Discipleship in Context, writing thousands of Bible studies for churches, no church has ever asked to study Obadiah. <laughs> Never. When you see Obadiah in heaven, would you, just, would you give him a hug? And I say, thank you for your ministry. I know nobody read your book, but I did. <laughs> and the book of Obadiah, the book that apparently no church wants to study, <laughs> answers the question why God was opposed to Edom, why God hated Esau. Look, here are the first two verses of the least studied book in the whole Bible. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. There's literally an entire book of the Bible to answer that question, why does God oppose Edom? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Does God, the potter, not have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, the same womb with twins within it, some vessels for common use and some for noble use? This is God's sovereign right, that God would sovereignly choose to demonstrate his wrath through Edom and then make salvation possible through Israel. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You see this promise reiterated to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. You can pull out Google Maps right now and tell me the name of the country that exists on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Guess what? It's Israel. The nation exists. The promise is fulfilled. This prayer in Genesis 32, prayed millennia ago by Jacob, was answered. And the evidence is there on your phone in your pocket. It's there on the news when you go home tonight. The nation exists despite all the odds against it. It exists. God keeps his promises. That promise 
like we read in Romans 9, affects you today. Because it's not just about the physical descendants of Abraham. It's about the spiritual descendants of the promise. God made a way through Israel for all men to be saved. That way, that truth, that life is Jesus. From the tribe of Judah, right there in the midst of it, Jesus was born, the Lamb of God, the sinless one. He was crucified, and he resurrected again. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, thereby taking your piece of this promise made to Abraham, reiterated to Isaac, and prayed by Jacob in today's text. Be saved today. God keeps his promises and answers his prayers. The nation of Israel is proof that today's text is real. Now, I want to prepare us to take communion. If... Our ushers would come in and distribute the bread. I want to pray on your behalf, two prayers. Christian, in light of this text, it's entirely possible that you, you have refused to wrestle with God. You want only a walk with God that is pleasant. And you don't know that the Lord is going to wound you in a way that allows you to be used mightily. And if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. So would you pray with me now, God, I believe that your word is true. I believe, God, that you wrestled with Jacob, refined him, and humbled him in a way that led to the fulfillment of your promise to him, and that I might be a child of that promise as well. God, forgive me for my cowardice. Lord, I pray on behalf of those in this room who were skeptical of the gospel until now. They see all of this as the backstory to a nation that exists today. God, I pray they would place their faith in Jesus right here in this moment. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe in their hearts in the resurrection. Be saved and have their very first communion right now. In Jesus' name we pray.